We are finishing up our series this week on rest. We've been talking about rest and what it means to rest. The name of this series is Rest a Matter of Life or Death, and we call it that because in the Old Testament, God tells his people, if you don't rest, you will die. It's that important for you to be my people. God actually says, if you're going to be my people that are set apart from other people, you're going to have to be able to stop what you're doing long enough on a regular basis to show people that you're not the ones that are actually running things, that I am. And if you can't rest, then that means that you think you're God, like all the other peoples. And so I want you to be different in that way. But what we've also realized is that, is that what we see is that if we don't stop and rest, that we will still experience death, that it won't just bring itself upon us to rest, but we will actually suffer in the absence of it and we'll suffer spiritually if we don't stop and take time to refocus on who God is, to take a break and to stop the regular routine of life so that we can recharge and so that we can refocus on God. This morning, we're wrapping up our series and we're talking about the idea of rest from religion. We're gonna read out of Mark chapters two and three, the end of chapter two. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Mark two, verse 23. We're gonna read two different accounts. It's the Sabbath and Jesus is doing something on the Sabbath and we're gonna read exactly how Jesus handles rest and what comes from it. Or the Sabbath specifically. So Mark 2, verse 23 starts. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, as they, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He goes on after this. And we read in the beginning of chapter three, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So Jesus is a pretty galvanizing figure. He is seen by many to be subversive, meaning to come in and mess things up and to turn them upside down, to uproot a system that has been established. Now, the reason he's seen that way is because that's exactly what he is doing. Jesus is coming in, and he is ministering and acting and teaching in a way that causes, above all other groups, the religious leaders the current Jewish religious leaders of the time, to say there's something dangerous about this man. He is, he is eroding away people's confidence, it seems, in our religion. 
And so they try to check and see exactly what rules is he going to break? What does he think of the law? How is he going to behave? And they decide that the Sabbath is a great day to do it because the Sabbath is the day of more rules than any other day. Because doesn't that make sense? That on the day of rest, that we have more rules than any other day. And so they go, we know we can trip him up on the Sabbath. Even collecting grain is against the laws that they had established in the traditions for the Sabbath. Even healing a person who is injured because he's not in threat of losing his life, ultimately is breaking the Sabbath law. And so as they confront Jesus on this, what we see here is a confrontation of religion and Jesus's way, which seemed to be a different way. Jesus comes on the scene comes in the flesh and embodies another way that is not a part of the religious order. And understandably, people flip out. Now, when we talk about religion, what we're talking about is, is the ways that, that we seek and interact with God, seek to connect with the divine. Now, we've read about in Exodus that God was incredibly detailed and specific in telling his people how to interact with him. He said, here's the temple that you build. Here's how big it has to be. Here's what it has to be made out of. Here's what the outer room is in the inner room. Here's what you worship and sacrifice for. Here's the priests and what they wear. Here's the days on which you do it. And he was very specific about these things, very intentional and meticulous in communicating these things to people. God gave the people a way to experience his presence, to interact with him. A way that we would describe what religion is, or at least the things that lead to religion is this. Let's say that you have a glass of water. The water is God. The Bible uses uh, images, uh, imagery that, in, that, that sort of evokes ideas that have to do with liquid when it talks about spiritual things, holy things. There's water, there's wine, there's oil, there's these things that kind of flow and are moving and, and, and can kind of run out, but can also sort of be contained, it seems. We read in Scripture all about this. And so if you want to uh, have a glass of water, then you have the glass, and the glass is the thing that gives you a way to have access to the water, to hold on to it, to know where it's going to be and how you're going to get to it. So the glass itself is how we find and how we know God. It's our attempt to find and to know and to connect with God, and the water is God himself. If you didn't have a glass, how would you get water? I don't know. you put it in your hands, right? It kind of leak through. You would only be able to hold it for so long. You'd have to keep going back to a source for water again and again and again, right? And so God provides his people with this way. Another way of thinking about this is there is faith, which is the thing inside, and there is the form, the thing that gives structure to it, the way that we engage with that thing. Now, God gives us ways so that we can interact with him. Religion is when you remove God and you just keep the ways, the things that you do. When Jesus, when the New Testament talks about the idea of religion, it is entirely negative, with the exception of one instance in the book of James, when it says, religion that is pure is this, to care for widows and orphans. Every other time that religion, religious leaders, religion is used in the New Testament, it is in a negative sense. It is to communicate that there's this system that's been developed, and here is what it is. Religion is this. It is rules. It is regulations. It is rituals. And it is routines. These are the things that, when pursued for themselves, become what we would call religion. The world is full of religions. There's lots of religions. Religions. 
Uh, if you have friends, if you're here at church because you go regularly and you have friends that know that you go to church, they would presume that you are a part of a religion because you engage in rules and regulations, rituals, routines, things like that. Now, that is what religion is, and that is the thing that Jesus seemed to speak the most harshly against, and he is offering us rest from. We see in the book of Exodus, all the way back there, or at least in the Old Testament with God and his people, it's after Exodus, we see that the very things that God gives his people can be perverted, and when they are, God says those things are no longer good, okay? the way that you're treating them. For example, there's a time when a bunch of snakes are killing people, they're biting them and they're poisonous. And so they pray to God and he gives them this big statue of a snake, this big thing that's gonna give them the ability to not be killed by these snakes anymore. So it saves them, it saves the people that use it or that are by it. And so then they keep it, they keep it for a long time and it becomes a very big deal because God gave them this thing that would deliver them from these snakes, that's a huge deal. And then over time, year after year after year, people begin to, they, they continue to, to love this thing and to even almost worship this thing. And then there begins to be a point where God, and we read about a point in scripture where God says to his people, he says, you need to tear this thing down because the very thing that I gave you has become the thing that you have put your faith and your trust in. You're worshiping it like you should be worshiping me. You're making it the object of your worship and that's not okay, that God himself tears it down. I'll give you an example of this. I read this from a pastor this week. Imagine that there's a married couple and um, they've lost the spark in their relationship. And so the wife tells this to her husband one day. She says, we've lost the spark in our relationship. And so a couple days later, it's a Tuesday night, 6.30 at night, doorbell rings. She answers the door. It's the babysitter. Only she thinks, I didn't call the babysitter. I didn't hire this babysitter. And then her husband comes down the stairs. He says, I called the babysitter because we are going to go out. It's a surprise. She goes, what? He says, go upstairs, put on something nice. And uh, he doesn't say it in a mean way. He says it in a nice way. Put on something nice and, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go out. And she goes, okay. So, so she goes up, she puts on this nice dress and then they go out. He takes her to this special restaurant that they've never been to before. And there's a special table that's been saved for them, reserved for them. It's got some, some candy and stuff on it. It's got a little note. So they sit down at the table. They start, they start to eat and talk. She reads the note from him. He, he usually buys her cards. You know, he goes to Target, buys her a card. It's like funny or whatever, and then that's it. And then he just signs his name, underlines a few words, you know. But this one he wrote himself. He wrote everything himself, and it was really personal and meaningful, and it said things that were important to her. And she read it and was like, I can't believe this. This is incredible. And, and then they, they just talk and they eat for a long time. They talk about life. They talk about their relationship. They talk about things they haven't talked about in a while. And then kind of towards the end of the night, he reaches under the table. He pulls out her favorite flower, a blue rose. He pulls it out and that he had had there the whole time and he gives it to her. And then they leave and they kind of head out to the car. And before they get in the car, they, they dance a little bit or something romantic. And then they get back in the car and then they drive home. And for the rest of the week, she's just like, this, this is, this is it. This is what it, this, the spark is back. I wonder if it'll last. Next Tuesday at 6.30, the doorbell rings. She answers the door. It's the babysitter. Only she didn't call the babysitter. Her husband comes down the stairs and he says, I called the babysitter. We're going out. It's a surprise. Go upstairs. Put on something nice. So she goes upstairs, she puts on something nice. He says, we're going out to dinner. They go to the same restaurant, to the same table. And there's stuff on the table and they start to eat. And there's a note that he wrote, handwritten note. 
but it's the exact same thing you wrote the week before. Every single thing is the same. So she reads it, oh, okay, this is kind of weird, okay. And then, uh, then they talk, but they only talk about this. He only wants to talk about the stuff they talked about the week before because it was such a good conversation. It was really good. He's like, let's just talk about that stuff again. And he reaches over the table. You, never, you guys aren't even guests, so don't try. He pulls out a blue rose and he gives it to her. She's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. They go out to the car. She's like, he's like, we got to dance by the car. What? Okay, we, got, we did that last time. So they dance, they get in the car, they go home. She's like, okay, that's kind of weird. Next Tuesday, 6.30, doorbell rings. She opens the door. It's the babysitter, only she didn't call the babysitter. You're like, this guy didn't write a sermon. He's just going to fill 20 minutes. No, not sure. <laughs> but week after week, this happens. She begins to get annoyed. She begins getting irritated. She begins to get frustrated. Now, if you were six months after this began to ask this couple, how's your marriage? the husband would say, oh, it's great. We are religiously romantic. Every week at the same time, we do something that is so, that is so romantic. Right, honey? And his wife would be like, I've been seeing a counselor for like three months because I think you're losing your mind. I think you're insane and I don't know how to tell you about it, right? This is what religion is like. When something begins with a relationship and begins with the things that are meaningful that bring you to that point, that connect you with that person. But you then begin to focus too much on the things and you say, this is what it means to be in the relationship. We always do this, we always do this, we always say this, we always have this, we always share this. And it is in our tendency, it seems, when something seems to be working, to double down and to continue to make that thing into a routine. It turns a relationship into rules, regulations, rituals, and routine. That's what religion is. And do you know what else religion is? It is exhausting. It is exhausting. And so if rest means religion, no thanks. We need a break from that. But what the gospel tells us, which is different from this, is this. The gospel says, know Jesus. The gospel does not say, do this tradition and this religious thing and this routine and this ritual. Be a part of this group. Come from this place. Say these right things. The gospel says, know Jesus. And I don't mean know the factual information about Jesus. I mean actually know the person of Jesus. The gospel doesn't just say that. The gospel says, trust Jesus. Have a living confidence in who Jesus is. The gospel says, seek Jesus. The gospel says, follow Jesus. The gospel tells us that these things are the center of our faith, not all of the stuff that we do, or for many of us, all the stuff that we've spent a lot of our life getting really good at doing. Jesus says some shocking things about himself. At the end of this passage that we just read, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I am God. That's a big deal. He's not just saying, I'm a good rabbi, I'm somebody important. He's saying, I am God, and they don't understand it yet. But this is the claim that Jesus is making. Jesus makes huge claims about himself in the Bible. Jesus says all these I am statements. He focuses everything back on himself again and again and again. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the door, the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the vine that you must be connected to. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus says, I am these things 
So focus on me, watch me, be connected to and in relationship with me. Now, if you're somebody who's not a Christian, and you're like, I kind of like some of these things I hear about Jesus. There are things about him that seem good, that seem wise, that we could benefit from, that I'd like to learn. After a certain point, you have to accept the fact that Jesus says of himself, I am God. And so either he is totally insane, he is lying to everybody, or he is God, or what he is saying is true, but it's only one of those things. Now, he says, I give you life like nothing else does. I am truth like nothing else is. I am what your eyes ought to be fixed on, and your entire identity ought to be found in me. He comes in and takes the old order, the old way of interacting with God. And he says, it's not about all of those things. It's about him. Look to me as I look to him. And you say, how in the world does that even work? You see, religion is by nature inflexible. And what is the most infuriating thing about Jesus, it seems, is how flexible he is much of the time. That as people confront him on things and ask him about things, he shows a great flexibility to things that upsets people who are religious. They think we need to be more rigid. But Jesus says, it's about me. And I'm going to love people and I'm going to love God. I grew up in a church that was, it turned out... I realized as I got older, was technically a cult of Christianity, meaning that they used the Bible, but they had added in things to the gospel. And as a result of that, um, you had to do extra stuff in order to be a part of God's sort of people. And what I learned about that group, that in, re- in reflection, upon looking back on those years, what I recall about it that is so profound to me is that growing up, we never, ever, ever said the word Jesus. We said God a lot. We talked a lot about God's people. We talked a lot about commands. We talked a lot about the way to live and what to do. But if anybody in the crowd ever said Jesus, everybody thought they were a little bit too spiritual, a little bit too kind of touchy-feely, like, oh, okay, that's weird. Let's talk about something else. And this is true of many groups like this, that it seemed that our desire to take something, because this is what a group like the one that I'm a part of does is that you, you take another organization, like a specific church, a denomination, a sect, a group, and you put it in front of Jesus in the gospel. And you say, if you want him, you got to get through us. You got to get through this thing. And if you're not in this thing, you can't know him or that thing. And the problem with that is it immediately makes Jesus into almost a bad word. Because Jesus says, I am all of it. And you can't, you can't get around me and pursue these other things no matter how much we try. Pursuing Jesus and not religion is the equivalent of you are a prisoner in jail and someone comes to you and says, listen, if you are good and you do good and you don't act up and you mind your business, you can get out early versus somebody sitting you down and saying, we're going to release you now even though you haven't paid your time and you're completely free. Because one person can walk away and say, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to work and I'm going to try and I'm just going to be good. And if I can do it, then I can be freed, really freed. Whereas another person walks away saying, I am profoundly grateful 
because I was released. And instead of pride, instead of, uh, you know, self-importance, the response is gratefulness and humility, saying, I didn't deserve what I just received, but I truly did receive it. One of the things we've been talking about a lot over this series on rest is we've been talking about like taking a break from stuff at our church, some of the things that we do, some of the programs and the events and the activities that we have done as a church for a long time. One of the reasons that we've realized as I've talked with people about this is that it makes you realize how much you hope in some of these things, how much you think this is the way to do it. This is the way to reach someone. This is the way for the church to make disciples. This is the way for us to be followers of Jesus. But then to recognize, is my hope in some of these things in a way it ought not to be? What, the, what Scripture tells us is to fix our gaze on Jesus. And as we do that, whatever else falls away, whatever else changes, then that's okay because we have Jesus. And he will continue to empower us to do things. And he's the one that we're seeking to be connected to anyway. And no one can take that away from us. And no one can change that. Now, there's also things that religion says to us. Religion says that we have to prove something, that we have something to prove. Religion says there are things I have to do in order to be accepted and loved. Religion says there's a group I have to be a part of specifically in order to count. Religion says I have to be good enough. Religion says I have to work hard. We see this in Jesus' ministry as people are with him. Hey, Jesus, who do I need to love again? How much do I need to love them? How about forgiveness? How does that work? What does forgiveness look like? Okay, that's pretty, that's pretty intense. How many times then do I have to do that? Really? Okay, fine. Who? Who's my neighbor? Who do I need to forgive? What do I need to do? Continually trying time and again to figure out a way to, to kind of box in the things that Jesus tells us so that we can just work hard enough and we can prove that we're good enough. Religion says you have to prove it to God. You have to work. You have to try. It says that to us. It tells us that. Which is exhausting. And the crazy thing is that many of us are actually drawn to this a lot. We're drawn to this because we go, I, I want to do something. I, I want to just know what to do and how to act and how to live and know that I'm okay. In fact, I also want to be able to tell that to my kids and to my friends so they can know as long as you do these things, as long as you're a part of this group, as long as you act this way, you'll be fine. You'll be okay. You don't have anything you need to worry about. God will be happy with you. And it's all wrapped up in this thing that we keep coming back to when we talk about rest, which is we can't rest because we need to do certain things in order to feel like our life is even worth it. Our identity is wrapped up in the things that we're trying to do and the rules that we're trying to follow and how good we're trying to be. And so when you say, take a break from that stuff, we go, I'm all wrapped up in that stuff. If my family doesn't turn out a certain way, if my job doesn't go a certain way, if my marriage isn't a certain way, if, if, if I don't feel at the end of the day like that was a good enough day, then what do I have? Because that's what my hope is in. That's what my identity is being built upon. But Jesus says to us, not to prove something. He says, come to me and rest. Come to me and rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. And we go, yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me because 
I've read the things that Jesus says. I've heard the things that Jesus says, and they don't seem very easy. In fact, if I was going to try to tell someone else about Jesus, and I wanted them to come do this thing that I'm doing, the message I feel like I'd have to give them is, all right, are you ready to roll up your sleeves, right? Are you ready to get to work? Are you ready to start trying to do the right thing, to be the right kind of person? If you are, let's talk. If you're not, then we've got nothing to talk about. It doesn't feel like an easy burden. It doesn't seem like an easy load. It doesn't seem like we're able to come and truly rest. The reason Jesus says this is because he promises to us that if we come to him, first off, we must die to ourselves in order to truly come to him. And this is where the rest is found. Because the work and the toil and the difficulty and the pain, the overwhelming feelings, all of it comes from what we are pursuing and what we are wrapped up in, what our identity is in. And Jesus says, you need to let go of that stuff and let your identity be in me and who I am in a relationship with me. If it is in me, you will find rest. There's nothing harder than trying to do the things that Jesus tells us to do without actually being a follower of his. I mean, that is like, that is an awful experience. To try to live out the Sermon on the Mount without truly having a relationship with Jesus and knowing what God's grace looks like. Jesus tells us that we have to have faith in him, which means know him. Not just know information about him, but actually know him. And in doing so, all of the ambition and all of the fear and all of the poverty and all of the suffering and all of the insecurity and even the abundance and the success and the good things... Even the very desires of our heart that are in turmoil, because guess what? The hard news is that if you decide to live out the desires of your heart, you're going to learn about 10 seconds in that your heart wants like eight different things and they all conflict with each other. So at best, you've got to pick one or two at the cost of the others. But you will never fully be able to, to live those things out, to have them be harmonious and to feel good. And so you will feel conflict. Jesus says, all of that stuff the pain and the good and everything else that you can live for and be identified by and have your identity in and be defined by, let go of those things. Come and rest with me and follow me. Let your very identity be me. If you do that, you will experience a profound rest from trying to be God. Because this is what we do when we aren't with Jesus. This is what Adam and Eve did. This is what happened in the garden. We said, I think that I need to figure this out on my own. I need to do this. And Jesus says, no, come to me. I will give you rest. And the enemy isn't tradition itself. It's the complete dependence on tradition and routine to point us to Jesus, thinking that if we just do the same things we've always done and are a part of the same things and the same groups and the same everything, live the same way, act the same way, do the same stuff, then we'll have Jesus rather than saying, where's Jesus? This is why Jesus says, I am here for the sick and not the healthy. I have some doctors in my family. I'm a hypochondriac. So I'm always talking to them about things, which they love. And there's a very big difference between talking to my stepdad over on Christmas Eve about stuff and going in and making an appointment with my actual doctor and having a conversation with them about something that I'm worried about. Because one is a conversation where it's not about me being sick and needing someone to heal me. 
I just want to talk about it. But when you go to the doctor and there's something wrong, you expect to be healed. You expect them to help you. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not the guy you talk to at Christmas to kind of just get some information, some advice about things and kind of dip your toe in the water and just kind of leave it there and casually have discussions about these things. Unless you come to me and recognize I am sick, I am in need, unless you recognize that, then you won't find me very useful. You won't find what I have to say very helpful. In fact, if anything, you'll find it probably more burdensome because you'll try to add it on top of all the other stuff that you're doing. And so what we do is we focus on Jesus and we begin there. One of the most helpful things that I've done is that I've tried to spend as much time as I can in the Gospels. Throughout my life, throughout phases and stages of my life, it's not all I ever read, but I look at the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus and what he says, and I say, this is, this is what I will interpret everything else in light of. In terms of when I read that I'm supposed to live a certain way or do a certain thing, I go, okay, now what was Jesus telling us again to be about? Because if I cannot do it within the spirit that Jesus lived, then I'm not fixing my eyes on Jesus. If I allow a thing that I do, a way that I like, a people group I'm a part of, an identity that I'm forming, if I allow it to be something that is going to take me away from what I read about in the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus, then I have to ask myself, is that okay? Is that right? I love building furniture for some reason, like assembling it, not building it from scratch. I love assembling furniture. I like love it so much, but I never read the instructions because I don't need to. And then I always reassemble everything I've ever put together, like everything. I put it together, I realize halfway through I did it wrong, and I go back and I read the instructions. And this is spiritually one of the things that we do much of the time. We think, oh, I'm fine, I figured it out, I'm good, everything's fine, I know how to do this now. And then we mess things up and we go, I'm going to go back and I'm going to take a look again at what I'm actually supposed to be doing. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. And this is why, again and again, we go back to Jesus himself saying, how do I fix my eyes on you? Religion also asks a question. Religion asks who's in and who's out. Religion likes to draw very, very clear lines and say who is in and who is out. Hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? How do we make sure we don't have imposters? How do we make sure that we don't have people in our midst who are fake, who are hypocritical, who are not really believers in this thing, who are not really giving of everything to you and to, to your way? How do we as a group remain pure, Jesus? What do we do? And Jesus' answer to people again and again is he puts them in the same situation by asking them, are they going to focus on him or are they going to focus on these other people? There's a, there's a tendency that we have, which is to look at a group of people following Jesus and then try to mimic them, rather than to look at Jesus and try to be like him. We have a tendency to say, what I'm supposed to do, I mean, historically, the church has been around for a long time. I'm supposed to look for the people, what it looks like when a group of people follow Jesus and then say, now let's do that. Rather than say, let us look at Jesus and let us follow him. 
And what Jesus is calling us to do is to focus on the center. And when we focus on the center, which is him, we pay less attention to the edges. We just do. But when we focus on the edges and we say our job is this, the boundaries, the protection of these things, first and foremost, then we will take our focus off of the center. And we will become more about that than about Jesus himself, which is the thing that his disciples are not to do, his followers are not to do. And have you ever wondered how do I really like love and accept those who are different from me, those who have different convictions from me and believe different things, but still not compromise my beliefs and my convictions, still live in a way that's true to those things, but love those people? You think, what would Jesus think about that? How would Jesus do that? Well, what if God didn't actually expect you to judge anybody? What if at no point did Jesus say to people, I expect you to go around judging other people? In fact, when the disciples asked Jesus about this, one of the best parables he tells them is the wheat and the tares. He talks about wheat that's planted and some weeds that are planted and these things grow up together. And, and they say, what do we do about these things? And he says, well, if you pull out the tares, you're going to destroy the wheat. You're going to hurt the wheat. So just let God sort it out. People say to him, Jesus, there's people preaching the gospel. There's people doing things for wrong motives. Jesus says, if they're not against us, they're for us. The gospel is being preached. And Paul says this as well. The gospel is being preached. And so we are happy for that. That again and again and again, people have a tendency to want to draw lots and lots of lines and boxes. And Jesus is not the one saying, draw lines and draw boxes. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, does he seem to be saying to people, you guys need to draw some clearer lines and boundaries? Or does he seem to be saying to people again and again, you guys need to stop drawing so many lines and boundaries? That, what's, that is what it seems that he's saying to these people who are coming out of a religious environment, a religious system. And when I'm honest, I would say that much of my confusion, much of my angst, much of my fear is centered around making it clear who stands where in the kingdom of God. Now, much of this comes from a place of me wanting people to be saved, saying people need to understand, like, like, am I saved? Am I not? Am I a part of God's kingdom? Am I not? We shouldn't be ambiguous and vague about that. We should be clear about that, and Jesus is as well. Jesus isn't a moral relativist. Jesus believes in absolute truth. Jesus believes that he is the way, and he calls everyone to him and to follow him. And yet, he is radically inclusive of people in such a way that is deeply offensive. What we read about at the end of this passage is it says that the Pharisees go to the Herodians and they plot to kill Jesus. The Herodians are the people who, do I have this up here? Yeah. It says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Okay, the Pharisees are the, are the, are the legalistic overly, like incredibly conservative religious leaders of the time. Their job was to stand apart from society and to be pure and to help people be that way. The Herodians are the supporters of the Roman Empire who are characterized by moral relativism. They don't really care about right versus wrong. And so the incredibly conservative group is meeting with the most relativistic group that there is, and they're both plotting how to kill Jesus. And what does this tell us about who Jesus is and what he's saying? It is that first of all, it seems to be deeply offensive to these people that are at extreme places. 
that it seems to be offensive to those who care about absolute truth and what's right and wrong, and that, and that people ought to be a certain way, but then also who is deeply offensive to people who love drawing lines and love guarding the outside line and saying we need to be clear about who's in and who's out at all times and make sure that people know that and that they feel it whenever they come even close to us. It's tricky to understand, I think. So then how do we interact with God, seek to like pursue God, to gather together, to read his word, to do things, to have things that we do to bring us closer to him without those things becoming God? And it is a difficult thing to do, but it means, generally speaking, continually evaluating our hearts and the things that we do. That's what it means. It means saying, what is most important to me? The Apostle Paul says, I have this amazing background, and I consider it rubbish. And it doesn't literally translate to rubbish, by the way. But I'm not going to say what it would literally translate to, because I haven't been here long enough that I can say stuff like that. But Paul says, I count that stuff rubbish if it takes away from faith in Jesus and knowing Jesus. Because our tendency is to put our faith and our confidence in who we are, what group we're a part of, where we're from, the history we have, the things we've done at this point, the things that we've gotten good at. The behaviors that we've developed, the habits that we've formed, the rules that we've kept, rather than the relationship with Jesus himself. One author that I've read this week a lot about this, he's a pastor, his name's Bruxy Cavey. It's a weird name. He says this, here's the great irony. Jesus is happy to see his followers get organized in order to help spread the message that organizations are not the answer. Christ's followers read the Bible to learn of Jesus' teaching that reading the Bible is not what makes us Christian. We pray regularly in order to commune with the God who reminds us that praying regularly is not what makes us acceptable to him. And we go to church to collectively celebrate the message that going to church is not what makes us God's children. It truly is irony because we have to find a way to engage in these things without allowing them to displace God in our lives. And it's not an easy thing to do, it turns out, the longer that you do it. But the more that we allow those things, religion, to creep in, the more exhausted we feel, the more burdened we feel. And why does it seem impossible that we could ever communicate the gospel to somebody else? Because it turns out they have no interest whatsoever in this burdensome heavy load that we're carrying around. Jesus says, I offer rest. I offer rest from this. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. I seek to restore on the Sabbath. When we look at Mark and we look at what Jesus did, when he healed this man's withered hand, when they collected the grain, Jesus says, the Sabbath is to be a day of rest and joy. It is not to be a day of rules that limit what we can and cannot do. That is the heart of what it is to rest. And I am here to bring people back to the heart of what these things are that we're meant to do, that we're called to do and care about and focus on. And we cannot experience rest if we are engaged in religion. We can't. We must recognize when religion is there. And we have to find a way to let go and say, how can I fix my eyes on Jesus himself? 
And if I have no idea how to do that, then say that to him. Say, I am, I am sick. I need life and I need help and I need healing and I need you. I know all these things. I know all this stuff. I know everything I've been a part of up till this point. Or maybe you are not a follower of Jesus and your understanding of what it is to be a Christian is all about this stuff and it isn't about the person of who Jesus is. And to you I would say, the answer is to follow him. The answer is not to just have to become like everybody else. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that when we take our eye off the ball that you tell us that we've taken our eye off the ball. That you sent Jesus to this group of people, people who were um, religious. We thank you that he so articulately and forcefully spoke to them and against them. Father, there are many of us who have to confess that we have more of an identity wrapped up in religion and tradition and rituals and requirements and rules than we do in you. And we confess that to you. We pray that you would help us to begin to unpack what that means and how we can find rest in you. And for those who, who don't know you and don't follow you and seek you, I pray that they would know now that no amount of, no amount of ritual no amount of participation or attendance, no amount of changing who they are, the way they act, the way they live, can bring life. The life is only found in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Father, that is not an easy thing for us to do. Even if we can sing it right now. And that is our prayer this morning as we stand here before you, that we would surrender to you, that we would not come before you as, as people wanting to take from you, wanting benefits from you, wanting you to make our will done, wanting you to make our lives happen our way, Lord. We come to you and surrender, asking that your will would be done. And that the reason that we know that all things work for the good of those who love you is because we get you. That's why. It's not because you promise that things will go the way we want. It is because you promise us yourself. And we praise you, God, that we can have you, Lord. We are so grateful for that. And so it's in your name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.